War and peace, when is it right to fight? The Bible speaks about a time for war and a time for peace. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 to 11 we read, For for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. A time to plant and a time to um, pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cost and a time to gather. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity in their hearts. The law of God is clear. If a thief is found breaking in and he structurally dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Now this is not saying if a murderer is found breaking in. It's not even saying if a rapist or terrorist breaks in. It's being about if a thief. But it's night time. And you can't tell what the person's intention on. Even not that a thief deserves to be killed, but self-defense in your home is so basic that even if a thief breaks in at night and you kill him so that he dies, there is no guilt because he shouldn't have been breaking in and it was dark and you couldn't tell what his intentions were. How much more is it right to stop a terrorist, child abuser, rapist, uh, murderer, whatever? The law of God establishes the basic right of self-defense. Any person is justified in defending himself or his family whenever they are attacked or whenever their lives are in danger. Any weapon is permissible for use in self-defense. The law of God does not say the homeowner is guilty if he uses a sword, but innocent if he used the club. The issue isn't one of weapons or tools, but the rights and duty of self-defense. Whether you're using a frying pan, uh, a garden fork, uh, whether you're using an axe, a machete, whatever it is, whatever your hand finds to use for self-defense, it's acceptable. It's noticeable, have you noticed God has provided all of his creatures with weapons? Almost every animal has some means of defense, like the Swiss army knife of the Kuru. All for flight, all for fight, all for means of camouflage, but all of God's creatures have weapons to defend themselves and their loved ones. God has equipped his creatures with claws and teeth, serious teeth, and talons. And these talons, by the way, of an eagle can be bigger than a lion's claws. And quills, don't think a porcupine is that defenseless. A porcupine killed Elza, the famous born free lioness in Kenya. So uh, quills are very effective defense too. And horns, you don't want to argue with a rhino, or a buffalo for that matter. And impalas have some great horns. And mountain goats. And hooves, you don't want to get behind a zebra or a giraffe in a kick. They can kill a lion with that kick. And, of course, elephants have tusks. Serious weapons. You don't want to argue with us. First rule of the road in Africa, elephants have right of way. How can it be that our creators provided us creatures with weapons and with the instinct to protect their young and to protect their own lives? Don't get in the way of a lioness or any mother for that matter, mother, bear, whoever. But Bible-believing, born-again, spirit-filled, names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, believers are meant to be Doormats, pacifist doormats. Does that make sense? All of God's creatures have weapons from the eagles uh, down uh, to the impala, but we are meant to be good for nothing, like the salt that's lost its saltiness, just good to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot. I've spoken to Christians who have said, you know, when I've said, well, what would you do if your wife was being attacked? He said, well, I'd pray. And well, she should divorce you immediately. Any man who will not fight and defend his family has denied the faith and he's worse than unbeliever. There are times when we should stand up, step out and speak up, fighting the good fight of faith. The scriptures teach us we need to be ready to defend our family, our faith and our future. Men are called to be protectors. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than unbeliever. I would take it further. He's worse than an animal. I don't know an animal that won't fight to defend its young. So these Christians who say, I would just stand by and pray while my family is being attacked, 
well that person um, is not evidencing the Christianity we read about in the Bible at all anyone who fails to provide protection for his family has denied the faith they are worse than unbeliever in fact those who refuse to protect the young are worse than animal what animal will not fight to protect its young our Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples he who has no sword let him sell his garments and buy one now the sword was the best weapon of its time just like the equivalent of an assault rifle today a sword every officer had one if you don't have a sword sell your cloak and buy one Jesus said Pacifism is in defiance of historic Christian teaching. The 39 Articles, the foundational statement of the Church of England states in Article 37, it is lawful for Christian men to carry weapons. The Westminster Catechism, considered the finest expression of biblical teaching, states under the Sixth Commandment that the prohibition against murder requires as our duty all careful studies and lawful endeavours to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting but just defence against violence, protecting and defending the innocent. All careful studies and lawful endeavours. When you're at the shooting range, when you're practising, when you're doing a martial sport, whether it's sword fighting, fencing, boxing, kickboxing, whatever it is, it can be a fulfilment of the sixth command because all careful studies and lawful endeavours to enable us to preserve our lives and the lives of others is a fulfilment of this prohibition against murder. You shall not commit murder means you should not commit murder but also means you should do everything you can to prevent murder murder is bad whatever can prevent a murder is good like a muddied spring or a polluted well is the righteous man who gives way to the wicked so Proverbs 25 verse 26 makes it clear that if you are righteous but you give in to the wicked then you're like a polluted spring and who wants a polluted spring what good is that when the St. James Church of England in Kenilworth in Cape Town was attacked by upper terrorists of the Pan-African Congress, 25th of July 1993. One of our missionaries, Charles, was in the congregation who returned fire, injuring the terrorist who was spraying the congregation with an assault rifle from the door. This resistance by a single member of a congregation of over 1,400 in this church at night, with a snub-nosed uh, snub 38 um, revolver, this caused the terrorist to break up the attack and flee. Now there were 1,500 people in that church at night, but only one was ready to shoot back. Trained, ready, prepared and armed. And the best place your gun is on you when you need it, not in the safe. And that one person's act saved lives, many lives. Nehemiah 4.14 says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. So just as personal, family and church defence is necessary, so too the times when national defence is required. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to carefully observe, carefully, all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. So if you are, if you are, Obeying God's law, the blessings of obedience in Deuteronomy 28 include victory in battle, just as defeat is one of the consequences of being in disobedience to God. The great Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo taught that a Christian can be a soldier and serve both God and his country honorably. Christians can be soldiers. Augustine spelled out the Christian criteria for a just war. This involves three aspects. Just ad bellum, a just cause for the war. Just in bello, just conduct during the war and just postbellum, a just conclusion. A just war requires a just cause. Innocent life must be in imminent danger, and intervention must be to protect life. Only duly constituted authorities may wage war. It's got to be a duly constituted government. It cannot just be some group of people, a group of gangsters or vigilantes or bandits deciding to get together in you know, Irish Republican Army or something. No. Do you have the authority to wage war? War must be a last resort, only after all peaceful means have been exhausted. And there must also be a reasonable possibility of success to justify involvement in a war. You don't go to war if you can avoid it, but if you do go to war, you must fight to win. And if you can't win, there's no point starting. There must be just conduct in a war, and this requires that a war needs to be limited to military targets and not endanger civilians, nor damage the environment, nor harm animals. 
The scriptures say that soldiers are not even to chop down fruit trees during a war. Deuteronomy 20 makes it clear, when you come against a city to besiege it, you're not to chop down the fruit trees. You're fighting for life. You can't destroy the very life-giving trees that are required, fruit trees. If that's required to win this war, it's not worth it. The benefits of the war must be proportional to the costs and the risks of the war. Many wars like the Seven Years' War and so on was the cost was so horrific and the side effects were so massive that it just wasn't worth getting involved with. France bankrupted itself with the Seven Years' War and prepared themselves for the French Revolution as a result. The costs were inordinate. In a just war there must be a clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants, between men and women. The commanders go off to war and the women and children stay behind. Now, just before the Anglo-Boer War, there had been the Hague Conventions and the Hague's Rule of Warfare and the Geneva Conventions were signed and the British government had signed the Hague Rules of Warfare in 1898, one year before the Anglo-Boer War. And then they started breaking every one of the requirements that they had just solemnly agreed to at the Hague Rules of Warfare by waging war against civilians, burning farmhouses, 30,000 farmhouses destroyed in Orange Free State and Transvaal. Hundreds of thousands of livestock wiped out. Wells poisoned. Homes dynamited. People put into concentration camps. It took the British woman, Emily Harphouse, to research and discover what the British were doing, including the Australian, New Zealand and Canadians, burning farmhouses, burning homes, forcing people out of their homes, burning all their property, even dynamiting homes so that they can't be rebuilt easily. And here you can see the concentration camps in the middle of nowhere without a tree for shade, putting women and children to build a tent, just canvas tents, sometimes in the coldest time of winter, people literally freezing to death, horrific conditions, boiling hot in, the w- in summer, freezing cold in the winter, like at Ellawal North. The British tried to say that these were refugee camps, but they had signs up saying, as documented by Emily Hobbs, notice to prisoners of war. No prisoners allowed outside the limits of uh, the inner camp. Sentries are under strict orders to shoot any prisoners passing the fence by order. And repeated in Dutch. So, evidently they weren't refugees at all. And you can see horrible pictures like this, documented by Emily Harphouse, like here, Lizzie Van Sale, holding the porcelain doll that she'd given her dying in Bloemfontein concentration camp. Or Miss Porter of Lady Brunt, 18 years old when she died in the Bloemfontein camp, it was her wish that the fear clear be draped around her chest after death. Geisbert Johannes Vermeulen of Tvetsdorp dying at age 12. Just because the British policy of not giving sufficient rations, they gave half rations to people who had relatives in the field. So a deliberate policy of starving the women and children as punishment to the men who were in the field fighting. The body of Jopie van der Berg outside the tent where he died in Bloemfontein. And then sometimes churches burnt down for no good reason. 2nd of February 1902, British column burnt down the church at Lindley, burning down people's homes, forcing women and children into concentration camps where soap was considered a luxury and they weren't given sufficient food to survive and the people died in such numbers. It was 250 deaths per thousand per year. That means in four years everyone would have been dead just by the natural attrition. And so in the Orange Free State at Bloemfontein, at the Anglo-Boer War Museum, they've got the monuments there, including the parting when the men went off to war. Now, when the men went off to war, you assumed they were taking the risks, and the women back at home would be respected, as all civilized people had done through history. There's a wall that has um, the names and dates and details of all the Boer men who died in the war. Killed in action on the front and on the back, died of illnesses or died of wounds and from 1899 to 1902. 5,600 names, dates, places. But there also are plaques of the concentration camps where the women and children were interned, and they've got another wall that's been built just recently with the names of the Boer women and children who died in the camps. Now this is the women's monument in Bloemfontein to our heroines and beloved children, your will be done. It's in memory of the many women and children who died in the war. Now they have got uh, another wall facing the killed in action wall. 
with the names of women and children. 32,000 women and children's names, including, as a price to find a few Hammonds, including Petronella Johanna Jokoba, 19-year-old mother uh, who died there, and, and two of her children, three and one and a half. So even my family, Hammonds were mostly on the British side, but there were some apparently on the Boer side in the concentration camps to be on the war. But where do you find a war where six times more women and children die in a war than men? Well, Anglo-Boer War, the first war of the 20th century, started the, the, tra- the trajectory that we're seeing throughout our time now. There was a time that only men were dying in wars. And occasionally you get women caught up in the crossfire, collateral damage. But by the Second World War, civilians were the main target. They were actually bombing cities, aiming to kill civilians. That was the goal. Enemy combatants who surrendered or who captured are not to be mistreated in any way. These are the principles of a just war and of the Hague rules of warfare. The worst example of this would be Katyn. The Second World War, 1940, as the Russians took Poland, they round up all the intellectuals, all the officers and NCOs, and they murdered them with a bullet in the back of the head. And Katyn was for decades blamed on the Germans, very cynically, because everyone knew, everyone knew, Poland, the British, everyone knew the Soviets had done this, but they were the allies of the British and Americans, so there was an agreement to just lie and to blame their enemies who were not allowed to defend themselves. You could get imprisoned in Germany for questioning the fact that, um, uh, of who murdered the Polish officers because they called you a Nazi and locked you up if you said that the Soviets killed the Polish officers in the past and people were hung at Nuremberg for this crime of murdering the Polish prisoners of war but everyone knew, even the judges who condemned them that it was the Russian Soviets who did the murders and the Polish people first alerted me to this way back in uh, 1990 that Katyn was 1940 and the Soviets did it and the Allies have just been lying to cover uh, the evil track record of what the Allies were doing well these are just some of the monuments and probably the most poignant of all is in New York of the Polish officer being stabbed in the back um, by the Allies no less which is totally true that's what happened so much so there's been a lot of attempts to move this uh, monument away um, in Poland. Notice the man's mouth gagged as well. Officer gagged, hands tied with ropes behind his back, stabbed in the back by a Russian SKS rifle with bayonets attached. Well, this is the kind of examples of exactly what the Hague Rules of Warfare are written to prevent. The principles of a just war as espoused by Augustine, when you start to murder prisoners of war or target civilians. And the Poles have produced books on Stalin's massacre and the triumph of truth. And there's an excellent film, well worth seeing, Katyn, in Polish with English subtitles, which uh, was so important to get out, to get the Polish story out. I met the people, I know the people involved and relatives of those who died. And to Poland, this is so important that the truth be told that the injustice against their loved ones by lying about who was responsible and covering up. And it took Yeltsin and then Putin to finally release all the papers and the files uh, proving without a shadow of doubt this was by order of Joseph Stalin. It was done by the Soviets and the worst atrocity probably in the history of warfare murdering all the officer corps to wipe out the leadership of a future country so that the Soviets could oppress them with the communist regime. There's been other abuses too and the last secret is a book I remember reading as a boy of just 14 years old in Rhodesia and for 30 years they had suppressed this this truth that after the Second World War in accordance with the Yalta Agreement all Russians, not just Russian prisoners of war uh, but all Russians men, women, children even those who had never even been born Russia never even visited Russia whose relatives had fled the Bolshevik Revolution were living in the West. All Russians in Western Europe were to be gathered up and at bayonet point marched over to the Soviets, handed across the Iron Curtain, and they were murdered in great numbers by the Soviets. And uh, this picture is drawn of an Orthodox Last Supper being held, a uh, communion uh, service in Austria, 
in the Alps as the British came in with bayonets and rifle butts and bludgeoned and forced them across the Danube River into the hands of the NKVD who murdered many of them straight out of hand and the rest died in concentration camps in the Gulag Arctic Hellholes. Then more atrocities against civilians in the Good War and prisoners of war. Other losses by James Bach discovered the shocking truth that more German soldiers died as prisoners of war after the war than died in combat during the war, despite fighting on five fronts. 1.1 million of which died in American prison of war camps in Eisenhower's death camps. Eisenhower, in fact, as it was well said by General George Patton, America's top combat general, he said, I killed Germans in battle. Eisenhower kills them in peacetime in, in prison camps. And Eisenhower was such a vindictive person, he hated the Germans so much, he ordered them literally to be starved to death, not even given water, just round up hundreds of thousands in these camps, more than a million died, within sight of the Rhine River, the Rhine Meadow camps, not allowed to get food, not allowed to get water, and the Red Cross, who had millions of food parcels ready to deliver to Germany during this terrible winter, prevented by Eisenhower's orders. And so he massacred more German soldiers as prisoners of war than died in combat during six years of war on five fronts. James Bach documents the crimes and mercies which included the 15 million German civilians who died during and after the Second World War either from aerial bombardments or massacres on the ground by the Red Army, by Yugoslav Tito partisans and by others including allies including the French, British, Canadians who all took part in atrocities because their propaganda had demonized the enemy and justified in their mind any atrocity that they did. And uh, James Bonk, a French-Canadian's research, has been quite foundationally. Then you've got the Black Book of Communism, written by six communists, including the editor of Communism magazine, the, who was a uh, French Communist Party. These people were all hardcore communists who, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, collapsed the Soviet Union, opening up with the files in uh, the Lubyanka and so on, discovered that, according to own files, the Soviets had killed over 100 million people between 1917 and 1991, officially, by their own statistics. In fact, the stats are much more than that. Uh, Professor R.J. Rummel, uh, in his book Death by Government, documented the communists killed at least 169 million people in the 20th century. And that is not enemies killed in battle, that's civilians killed in peacetime, their own people killed by their own governments. Now, military necessity should be governed by the principle of minimum force. Classic example, David versus Goliath. Instead of two armies fighting one another, they each chose a champion. And whoever won, the other side would abide by that agreement. Now, in the Middle Ages, this was often done by choosing a champion who would, on horseback with lance, challenge the enemy, and maybe in a jousting, and maybe by mortal combat. But you had kings sometimes representing their armies, sometimes you had champions, but you would have one man fighting against another man to settle the agreement, like David and Goliath. So I would suggest we could solve a few wars these days. How about if Zelensky meets with Putin in a ring and they settle it out between themselves and their countries abide by the result? And I believe Vladimir Putin is quite uh, a serious opponent to take place. And I think it would be great if Biden could settle his differences with Putin directly. Instead of sending soldiers into the fight, how about having Biden uh, take on old uh, Putin and let's see how long this takes. I think we'd need to watch the replay uh, on slow motion to see what happened. Every means should be taken to limit excessive and unnecessary death and destruction. Nor make combatants use weapons or methods of warfare which are evil. There are some weapons of warfare which are forbidden by the Geneva Convention Hague Rules of Warfare because they are considered unchristian. That includes, by the way, using gas in warfare. And after the First World War used gas so excessively and extravagantly on all sides, everyone expected it to be used in the Second World War and every side was carrying gas masks because they knew they could be gassed at any moment. Incredibly, at no time was gas used uh, in the Second World War as a means of warfare. So that was quite uh, surprising. But then there was one major leader who had suffered gas and had been 
um, blinded for four months in the Battle of Ypres, and that's Adolf Hitler. He actually had been gassed. I've been to the actual uh, church where he was being treated for blindness, and the nurses, uh, there were nursing sisters as in nuns, carrying from in the basement, the crypts of this church, and it's in the battlefield of Ypres. So something prevented the leaders who had gone through the First World War from using gas in the Second World War. So despite the cruelty and the harsh and vicious combat of the Second World War, all sides refrained from using gas in the Second World War, which is intriguing. A just war, of course, must always be concluded with a just peace. Justice lifts the nations, as this great painting in Switzerland shows. Lady Justice must weigh the scales of evidence with a double-ended sword pointed to an open Bible. The Holy Scripture is the foundation of justice. Peace must come with justice or it's no peace at all. Revenge is not permitted. When the British were beaten by the French under Jean of Arc back in the 1400s, they were very vicious. They got her captured and then tried as a heretic and burned at the stake because she had led the French armies to victory. And this was nothing but revenge. This is, in fact, so wicked, they tried to call her a heretic, but in time the church came to recognize her as a saint. And one of the most noble preachers in French history, Joan of Arc, is a great heroine. And now you look at it that it's completely unjust to take revenge on a defeated enemy, let alone to a woman in this case. Lives and property are to be respected. The rule of law is to be upheld. Just think of the Armenian Christians, how much they suffered in the First World War. One and a half million Armenian Christians killed in the Turkish Empire. And this is the Holocaust memorial for the uh, genocide against the Armenians. In, and every year, huge amounts of people come there. There's the eternal flame and they lay flowers. And remember, the one and a half million of the ancestors who were murdered by the Turks in 1915. And there's the Holodomor, where Ukrainians remember that under... Lenin and Stalin, over 11 million Ukrainians were starved to death by confiscating the farming equipment, by confiscating food. The Holodomor, Holod, um, uh, hunger, and then more, plague. So Holodomor, uh, the hunger plague. And these are some of the memorials for that. So warfare is bad, but sometimes they can use economic warfare to starve people to death, which can be even worse. By these biblical standards, there have been many senseless, unnecessary wars in which neither side was at all concerned with righteousness and where both sides share the guilt. In, 19, uh, in 2014, I was invited to Britain to speak at a conference on the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to visit the Tower of London and see the beginning of the most remarkable memorial, a living memorial. And they had these poppies Ultimately, they planted 880,000 red poppies, and these were metallic poppies, and they were, each one was purchased. They cost £10 each. You could purchase them, and the proceeds went to the uh, War Widows Funds and so on. And so these 880,000 poppies were planted to commemorate the lives of British and Commonwealth soldiers who died in the First, uh, sorry, who died in the, yes, the first World War. Most are on the ground, but there are some in the air, because, of course, there was war in the air as well. And this is in the moat. Some of it symbolizes those who died at sea as well. And every night, they would be planting more, and they'd be naming, there'd be a long list being read out. People would come, and they'd hear over the loudspeakers the names. This started on the 4th of August, when Britain declared war on Germany, and started it being a world war. Otherwise, it would have just been a European war, with Germany fighting France, Russia, and, and Austria fighting Serbia, and that would have been over in a few months. But when Britain got involved, it became a world war. And so, starting on the 4th of August in 2014 until the 11th of November, they read the names of these 880,000 um, British and Commonwealth troops, including South Africans and Rhodesians, who died in the First World War. Now, I don't know what everyone else thought when they saw it, but I just saw red. And you cannot fault the courage and the sense of duty of the men who died in the conflict, doubtless doing what they thought was their duty to protect God and country, faith and 
king and all, all of that. But why were they fighting? Because an atheist assassin, an anarchist, a Marxist, murdered the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie on the 10th anniversary of their birthday, of their wedding, on the 10th wedding anniversary of theirs, which was in Sarajevo, on an anniversary of one of the biggest battles in Serbian history. And this Serbian anarchist, who was sponsored by the Serbian government, which was a rogue state, a terror-sponsoring nation, murdered the heir to the Austrian throne. And then we ended up fighting on the side of the terror-sponsoring Serbians. And the American White House under Woodrow Wilson even putting up the Serbian flag at the White House on the anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, 28th of June each year, just showing we were fighting on the side of the terrorists in the First World War. Rhodesia, South Africa, Britain, all of us. Why? What for? Why were why we on the wrong side in the First World War? And at any rate, we've got candles being lit and on uh, the uh, 4th of August uh, 2014, all the lights were out all throughout the British world and in our family too we switched off all the lights and just had a candle illuminating my father's helmet and some of our weapons, remembering what Winston Churchill called the unnecessary war and I think that's exactly what it was the first world war was an unnecessary war how Britain lost its empire and how the West lost the world going to war for what reason the biggest catastrophe in the history of Christian civilization Christians fighting Christians Protestants fighting Protestants and why? why were we in this war? this book by Patrick Buchanan is very helpful there have been a lot of unnecessary wars based on propaganda and this is a famous Time magazine cover which was a complete and utter fraud, uh, giving the impression that these people are somehow being starved to death or, or suffering some kind of attempt at genocide. And it's not true. These people were free to go anywhere they wanted. There was just a, a two strands of wire, really, between the photographers who took pictures through a temporary fence and these people behind. They were not enclosed, they were not restricted, it's not a camp. This is just a photo op that the journalist rigged up to make it look like it's a concentration camp. And this man who had a birth defect was asked to take a shirt off to make it look like they were being starved. The other people here don't look that starved and um, he's the only one that looks like it and he's the one with a shirt off. And this was deliberately done in order to justify America going to war, bombing Serbia, uh, taking the side of the Muslim jihadists uh, on the side of Al-Qaeda. Typical lies, lies, lies and again the West involved in a war on the wrong side, supporting the terrorists against fellow Christians. And as a result, 14,000 bombing raids of the capital of uh, Serbia, Belgrade. And just, you think of the horrors when the Ukrainian war started and people saying, the first time Europe's been at war since the Second World War. Not true. What about the Yugoslav War? What about the um, Allied campaign against uh, um, Serbia? And when they're saying the first time we've seen European cities being bombed, not so. NATO bombed Serbia because of a lie, a completely fraudulent um, propaganda campaign. And now we have other lies since. Regularly, under Obama, there would be gas attacks or chemical attacks staged uh, by American ally Turkey normally in order to blame on, Serbia, on Syria to justify America sending more Tomahawk missiles into Serbia or something like that. Lies, lies and more lies. And uh, in the different wars we've had recently, whether it was Libya or Syria or Yemen, uh, you can just see the countries before US involvement and afterwards. And you can kind of see um, what it looks like before liberation, what it looks like after liberation. Democracy coming soon to a neighborhood near you. They lied about the weapons of mass destruction. They lied to get us into Vietnam. Gulf of incident. They lied when they told us Libya was about humanitarian aid. They lied to us about Iran, never be fooled again. War made easy. How presidents and pundits keep spinning us to death. And it's true, there is a military-industrial complex in America that works out all sorts of wars. I was in America back in 2014, and uh, I had people saying to me, do you agree we should be bombing Syria? And I said, no, can you even find Syria on a map? No, they couldn't find Syria on a map, but they knew Syria needed to be bombed. Do you know anything about Syria? You know that 6% of Syria are Christians. Do you know Syria's got the largest number of Bible-believing Christians in the Middle East and they've got more religious freedom than anywhere else in 
in the Middle East because at that time America had sponsored a revolution that had overthrown Egypt where there were 12% of the population were Christians and they had had a lot of religious freedom but under the Muslim Brotherhood which Osama, which I've been as almost going to say Osama bin Laden but I mean Barack Hussein Obama and Hillary Clinton called a force for peace and moderation in the Middle East the Muslim Brotherhood were murdering Christians in Egypt so Syria had the most Christians in the Middle East the highest percentage and the most religious freedom and America wanted to bomb them and at that stage Obama and Biden were starting ISIS ISIS who murdered how many Christians, decapped how many Christians, was started by the US government, admitted by Biden when Vice President before Congress, and by the Chief of Staff of the US military, yes, we started ISIS to overthrow Syria. That's all based on lies, lies, and more lies. Now we've got Ukraine. And Ukraine is much bigger now than it was originally, including taking territories that were annexed over the years, um, by Vladimir Lenin or Stalin or Nikita Khrushchev just arbitrarily made a whole lot of territories to be part of um, Ukraine. But Ukraine never included Crimea except later when Khrushchev without a referendum, without any um, demographic reason just gave Ukraine uh, Crimea even though Crimea had been Russian since they liberated it from the Turks. But Khrushchev was a Ukrainian dictator of Russia and so there was no way that people could argue. Now, when Ukraine had a revolution sponsored by America, they wanted to abolish the Russian language as a language of education, and therefore the Russians in Crimea said, well, we choose to have a secession, we want to rejoin Russia. We don't want to stay part of Ukraine. And the vast majority of the Ukrainians voted that way. And now, this has been called invasion, and uh, the Ukrainians waged a war for eight years against the Russian-speaking Ukrainians in eastern um, part of Ukraine, the Donbass, and they killed thousands of civilians. Rockets, artillery, tanks, assaults, airborne assaults, before Russia counterattacked in order to protect um, Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, who had now asked to join Russia. So, there's a lot of violence going on in Ukraine, which was not going on before America overthrew the democratically elected government in 2014 and what the situation was according to the head of British MI6 head of British MI6 tweeted just recently that the war in Ukraine is about the values that distinguish us in the west from Putin's Russia the core values that are at the heart of our identity none more so than LGBTQ rights so according to the head of MI6 the main reason that the uh, West is fighting in Ukraine is because uh, of LGBTQ rights and that's exactly what the patriarch of the Russian church says patriarch Kirill says America wages genocidal war against any country that doesn't have a gay pride march and that might be true because before 2014 Ukraine had laws against gay grooming of children in schools but after 2014 when uh, Victoria Newland uh, helped sponsor with $5 billion overthrow the government in Ukraine and installed a puppet regime, a corrupt puppet regime of America in there. They started bringing out laws supporting LGBTQ propaganda and grooming of children in schools. So maybe the war in Ukraine is not only between internationalism and nationalism, but between gay, GB, LGBTQ rights and nationalist Christian standards. Within a week of the Russian invasion, both sides were sitting at the, at the negotiating table and agreed on the ceasefire which would include Ukraine stays neutral, no missiles in Ukraine, no nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and neutrality, and no joining of NATO and so on. And both sides were in agreement, and then Russia would withdraw. But the Americans said no, and the war to continue, because Zelensky is a puppet of the Americans. And now the facts are coming out about the phenomenal corruption in Ukraine um, involving the Biden crime family. Huge amounts of corruption. Corruption and abuse of power like they haven't seen in ages. Where Biden even admitted and boasted that he had a billion dollar package aid that he said he wouldn't give it to them unless the uh, 
special investigator, the district, not district, uh, attorney general was fired. The attorney general of Ukraine that was investigating the company that his Biden's son Hunter was involved in. And only when they fired the uh, attorney general did um, Biden as vice president under Obama allow the money to come through to Ukraine. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. So make no mistake, there's a lot of unjust wars out there. And bear in mind also that the Russians and the Ukrainians are two of the largest Christian countries in Europe. There's more Christians in Russia than any other country in Europe right now. And they've gotten rid of the commissars and they've brought in the chaplains. And you can see there's a very different attitude in Russia now. It's not the communist country it used to be. And here is Ukraine. You can see the painted poles there. Uh, the Ukrainian colors. Ukrainians praying for peace. Russians praying for peace. They read the same Bibles. It's terrible to see Christians fighting one another and this war would not have been going on without Western, NATO and American involvement and money. We should pray for the Christians in Russia and Ukraine. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Okay, so what do we say about the war going on in Gaza right now? Thousands of rockets fired into Israel. And Israel now fighting back, as you would expect um, them to do. What did they think was going to happen? They come into Israel and they start murdering. In fact, let me show some video footage that we've got here attached. Um, so, this is graphic raw footage, I must warn you. It's it's not close-ups, but it's from CCTV uh, footage and uh, car cams, security cameras, just showing some of these Al-Qaeda characters running around shooting people. This is from the rock concert, where a bunch, a trance party with the people gathering there under um, a Buddha statue, and they were dancing around, um, obviously in a state of um, uh, under drugs, Okay, here you have these people just coming over and shooting people at the gates in some security complex, I presume. Fully kitted out for war. What's the solution? You've got to have people who know how to fight and are armed and ready to respond to this sort of attack. Here they're coming on motorbikes. And just shooting people up and pulling people out of cars. And where is the military? Where is the police? Where are the armed citizens resisting them? <coughs> Rocket launchers on the back. It's the, the callousness of these characters. And they're coming in these SUVs, four-wheel drive vehicles, pretty well coordinated and attacking people who are obviously civilians, unarmed, unprepared, unsuspecting. So one understands why Israel is fighting back. A close look at TV cameras in this case. So when is it right to fight? When people attack you like this, what else can you do but fight back? Now, why they want to pick up bodies and take them back, I'm not too sure, except to maybe put them on display in Gaza. But uh, apparently they were carrying quite a few bodies back for some kind of purpose. There were some hostages, and said people want to bury their dead in Right, uh, yeah, even a dead body can be a hostage of a sort. Coming through the security fence, it's meant to be a barrier. And the way you treat people who are disarmed and in your hands, that tells you a lot about people. Because there's nothing stopping on being polite uh, to your enemies. My father spoke about in the Second World War the respect they had for the Africa Corps and how they treated one another as gentlemen. Eighth Army and Serious respect, and after every battle, helping one another's wounded and 
you could have the medics of the Africa Corps caring for the 8th Army wounded and vice versa and helping to carry one of those wounded back this kind of thoughtfulness now look at this here from GoPros and phones of Hamas themselves this is what they're posting for people to see around the world have we ever had it before that you can actually see terrorist assaults from the terrorist perspective so here's a Hamas um, perspective on the war they're going in with Hamas and uh, so crossing the line getting out of their defensive barrier that's meant to keep them separate just obviously firing at people randomly or firing at different houses obviously not short of ammunition and they like to use motorbikes for quick mobility rocket launchers So terrorists taking selfies even. I mean, what next? Not even obeying the law by wearing helmets. Are they not concerned for safety? So much for those security barriers. They had temporary so that they could drive their vehicles right over the security barrier, those fences could get ripped apart very quickly they need the kind of walls that were being built by Trump in, on the border with Mexico those he couldn't drive through those are steel, I'm afraid these wire and concrete are all too easy to get through there's so much for the wall the big question again is, how was Israel caught unawares? And there's some interesting news items that have come out on that. And the one thing is that the uh, Egyptian military intelligence warned Israel before the attacks twice that of, uh, to expect a massive escalation of attacks from Hamas coming up, imminent. And American military intelligence also warned Israel ahead of time, according to CNN and New York Times, that there was a huge amount of uh, a threat, America was saying, but where... Hamas about, they're playing something very big there's going to be a huge incursion into Israel and some another Mossad was taken unawares and surprised there's reports coming out that Netanyahu the Prime Minister ordered the Israeli Defence Force to stand down at the beginning of this attack well that needs to be investigated if that's true but maybe they've got a deep state in Israel as well and some are saying this could be a 9-11 type thing which the government wants it to happen in order to give them the excuse to do what they wanted and to unite the country. A lot of evils happened in America after 9-11. They passed all kinds of legislation that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Just possible that some of this is actually organized by the very uh, people who are responsible for the protection of the people in Israel. So here you've got this terrorist eye view of uh, the attacks. How do you negotiate with people like this? How do you speak to them? What's the best way to deal with them? You know, are you meant to walk up to them and offer them tea? Shooting at an ambulance. Why shooting at an ambulance? Do you see the children's playground? I don't know if this is the kibbutz, but there was a kibbutz they went into and they killed 20 children in the nursery, including babies being decapitated. So, these are some pretty evil, demon-possessed people involved in this kind of thing. And again, this, this looks like happy little suburbs and... Uh, it doesn't take much for these terrorists to just come in and change everything and ruin the whole day. But where's the resistance? Where's the opposition? It looks like they're able to go everywhere. Without, where's the idea of where the police? Where's the armed citizens? So, quite evidently, they were able to move all over the place without much resistance at all. Yeah, cameras are some kind of protection, but not much. They're slight deterrence. Okay. RPGs I don't know but these chaps don't look terribly uh, worried about counterattack. look awfully casual um, they're not operating the way military would where you're going in sequence and foreign movements and where there's consistent perimeter the way they're holding their weapons 
uh, it's evident they're not under fire, they're not under attack. They are basically, they've got a free field. It's like when you've got the only team on the field, you can score a lot of goals. First responders coming in, and there's some horrible things people have seen here. I think I'm going to stop it at this point because that's just... Uh, you get the impression that the best part to extent was to see what the uh, what the GoPros were saying from the other side. So naturally, how is Israel responding? They're flattening whole blocks of flats. They're going. Uh, they're obviously going to do a ground offensive. I believe Hezbollah's already getting involved in the north. But what I think many are missing is the fact that communist China has been putting out as a key goal for years now that a key strategic goal is to get America involved in four wars simultaneously, including one with a terrorist group. If China is to take back Taiwan, China needs America to be so distracted and so divided that they cannot bring full force to bear. And so uh, China has been speaking for a long time that we are already at war with America and NATO and the West. So America might be allowing massive technology transfer to China might be compromised with China to a large extent and even American flags are made in China but a lot of their pharmaceuticals that their military needs also come from China but China has said publicly and all the people in China know we are at war with America and China is by the way the biggest friend and ally of uh, Iran so um, can think of the size of their, their uh, Fleet. This, by the way, is the American uh, <coughs> aircraft carrier uh, Gerald Ford, uh, which has been ordered into the region. America has two uh, aircraft carrier units in the Mediterranean, one's in the eastern Mediterranean. And this reminds you of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. America got involved in the Vietnam War with apparently a torpedo boat attack by the Vietnamese on one of their ships, which is probably false flag lie. But anyway, getting America carrier group in the eastern Mediterranean it just needs one terror attack on it and it could escalate into full scale war with America getting involved so that's a bit frightening but who's the biggest supporter of Iran? Red China Red China buys one and a half million barrels of oil per day from Iran Iran has gotten 80 billion dollars 80 billion with a B for oil sales most of which to China China's Iran's best customer and Iran's the biggest supply of oil to China. So that's quite a partnership right there. Now, China could be using Iran to get America involved in a war that can suck them uh, dry. But bear in mind, China's also struck up a strategic partnership with Hamas. Hamas leader, the leader of Hamas, recently met with the head of China and they formed what they called a strategic partnership, whatever that means. Most of the rockets that have been fired into Israel right now are made in Iran on Chinese designs. The Chinese designs and the Iranians are producing them and Hamas are firing them into Israel. Iran is providing trainers who are training the Hamas fighters. So Iran is training Hamas fighters. Iran has given $1.8 billion to Hamas and China has given tens of millions of dollars to Iran. So if you think about who's benefiting from this war, well look at the people financing Hamas. Qatar, $20 million a month. Turkey, and Iran, and of course behind Iran, China. These are drones being paraded through the streets that they're going to use to attack Israel with, and of course rockets. And how many civilians caught up in, in the crossfire? And Israel's going to fight back, of course, and Gaza's going to get pummeled, and it's going to be street fighting like you haven't seen since Stalingrad. And the United Nations, are they going to be any good? The uh, Bible tells us that when Jesus was born, there's no room for him in the inn. Well, today there's no room for Jesus at the UN. But he is the Prince of Peace. And if the UN um, has no time for Christ, then they will not be able to bring peace. The United Nations hasn't achieved peace anyway. So I've given you a whole bunch of examples of unjust wars pointless wars, unnecessary wars. But we can also discern in history many necessary wars which were defensive and just. The Battle of Tours, AD 372 in France, won such landmark battle. Charles Martel the Hammer rallied the Christian soldiers of Europe on the plains of Poitiers for the Battle of Tours. 
and they courageously stood firm resisting six furious charges of the Muslim cavalry. That was the high watermark of the Islamic Jihad. They were sent reeling, fleeing back across the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain and they never were able to um, threaten France after that. The Reconquista was another just war. It liberated Spain from 800 years of Islamic oppression and occupation in 1492, which is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. The Great Siege of Malta, 1565, was another just war, defending Malta against the Islamic um, Turks who were seeking to crush them. The Battle of Lepanto, October 1571, the greatest um, sea battle using rowing vessels and, and sail vessels. And this defeated the Turks dramatically and ended the Turkish naval threat to Europe. Those are other vital defensive battles which protected Europe from being overwhelmed by Islamic invasions. And then there's the lifting of the Turkish siege of Vienna, the Battle of Vienna 1683 on the September 11th, when the Polish cavalry came down and um, obliterated the Turks. Another major turning point which protected Europe from becoming Eurabia. In Deuteronomy 20, the Bible states, when you go out to battle, not if, when you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it shall be, when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and save the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with the enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. So the Bible takes it for granted that you will be conscripted to war, that you will go out to battle, and when you do, you are to call a chaplain to encourage men not to be afraid, but to look to the Lord. Many of the Psalms are prayers to God for guidance in war, hymns of thanksgiving to the Lord for victory in battle. The scriptures reveal God is a God of war, as well as a God of peace, because God is primarily a holy God of justice, and so sometimes he has to fight against his enemies. On occasions, God not only permitted war, but he actually commanded it. He commanded Joshua to mobilize the armies of Israel to fight against the Canaanites in the, in the Promised Land. In the Bible, military defense against invaders is given the same status as capital punishment for murderers. If all the people with a conscience refuse to fight, it leave battlefields in the hands of people without a conscience. One example, an unjust war, but still, the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. Uh, the British were fighting against Keshwayo and when the British captured Keshwayo, uh, they treated him with great honour and the, the British commander ordered his men present arms to honour and salute the Zulu king, uh, Keshwayo, when he went into captivity. And when General Charles Gordon was Commandant General of the Cape of Good Hope, he was in the Castle of Good Hope and Commandant General of the Cape, uh, he was ordered to take Keshwaya and throw him into the dungeon. He would not do that because he was a Christian. General Gordon's office was just up to the top left of these stairs. And Gordon soon made his opinions known. They were strong and they were unpopular. The Boers who had thrashed the British army at Majuba were God-fearing men after his own heart, brave, feudal, pious. And so he was sympathetic to the Boers who had just thrashed the British at Majuba. And as for the Zulu, they'd been badly treated and the promises made to them had been broken. And Sir Bartle Fry was picking a fight. And at the Battle of Isilwana, an entire British regiment, 1,600 men, wiped out uh, by the Zulu. The worst defeat at the hands of a native army in history at the Battle of Isilwana. And um, that was followed up by the battle at uh, uh, Rooks Drift and so on. But finally the British did a, a lot of counter-attacks. And at the Battle of Olundi, the British square crushed the Zulu and uh, they had maxim guns, they had artillery, they had the lances, and there was no real mercy for the Zulu because the Zulu had so um, inflicted such casualties on the British and even killed their drummer boys and mutilated them and things like that. Isnawana. So there was a lot of sense of vengeance. And at the end of it, when they captured Keshwayo, uh, they wanted him thrown into the dungeon. But they still, because there's a Christian officer, ordered them to salute, present arms to the Zulu King, and when he went to Cape Town, General Gordon had evangelistic conversations with him and spoke to him of spiritual matters and prayed with him. And Gordon didn't neglect the spiritual welfare of the Boers. 
He had his tracts translated into Dutch and he distributed quantities across the countryside for the God-fearing burghers or farmers to study. But General Gordon's primary responsibility as Commandant General of Cape was to settle a Basutu border question. And during this time he had dealings with Cecil Rhodes who found Gordon an extraordinary man, someone who is totally disinterested in money. In fact, at one time, General Gordon refused a room full of gold, literally, from the Emperor of China for winning so many battles for him. And Gordon said he didn't need it, he has his British Army pay. Well, finally, Gordon resigned, complaining he could not do anything with such a weak, vacillating government as that in Cape Town. And he then went to the Holy Land and is the one who identified what's called Gordon's tomb. It's actually Christ's tomb and Gordon's Calvary, which is actually Christ's Calvary. But he was the archaeologist who discovered it from Bible study and the Protestants go to the places identified by General Gordon as Calvary and, and as uh, Golgotha. Unlike the Catholics and Orthodox, go to a place of the priest had a vision and said, this is the place. But having said that, foreign military adventurism does not fulfill the requirements for a just war. Instead of sending the Marines, we should send in the missionaries. There's no military or political solution to the complex crisis endemic to many parts of the world like the Middle East. They need the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ the most. Instead of sending bombs, how about sowing Bibles throughout these regions? Instead of intervening in the incessant wars, we need to bombard them with gospel radio broadcasts, ministry through the internet, Bibles online, wholeheartedly work to fulfill the Great Commission. We will do more to undermine terrorism and aggression by fulfilling the Great Commission than we will by military expeditions. There are frequently alternatives to war, including diplomatic and economic measures and a more excellent way of Christian love and gospel ministry. The wise Christian does not seek to selfishly avoid the problems of the world, but courageously steps out in faith to be part of the solution. Consider the example of Switzerland's armed neutrality. The Swiss are not pacifists. They take national defence very seriously. They're a very well-armed country. And I was pointing this out last week, how travelling in Switzerland I saw this shooting range and I said, is that a pistol range? He said, no, it's a rifle range. Where they shoot from? From the other side of the valley across um, traffic and cows and homes. Well, people are good shots. Well, I'm sure they are. And, in fact, here's this young man who um, I asked how quickly he could get ready for battle and it took him five minutes and 20 seconds to get fully dressed. And his family brought out all kinds of weaponry. This is just a normal apartment in a mission station. And here they've got a whole series of generations of warfare weapons in their home. And on the postage stamps is sharpshooting because that's the national sport of Switzerland a nation that shoots together stays together and the hills are alive with the sound of gunfire the men must serve in the army but if a girl wants to do target shooting the government gives her an assault rifle free and a crate of ammunition per year free now you understand why Switzerland's a free country they train their children to shoot from early on they win the Olympics in shooting they're armed, they travel with their weapons, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, they're all out there on manoeuvres regularly on the weekend, uh, the chocolate manufacturers. Switzerland is a country that does not have an army, Switzerland is an army. And they don't just look good, they can fight well too. They make nice chocolates, but they also make outstanding weapons. If you want peace, you prepare for war. You have your point of view, I have my point of view. But the primary involvement of Switzerland in foreign conflicts is sending in humanitarian aid, such as through the Red Cross. The International Red Cross, one of the greatest humanitarian agencies in the world. Henry Dunant, who started the Red Cross, was a Bible-believing evangelical Christian. And if you go to the monument, uh, museum for the International Red Cross of Geneva, they've got his Bible on display. And the scriptures, preach the gospel, heal the sick, go and do likewise, love your neighbour. Do you want to others you want to be done unto, and so on. And these are the quotes in the museum next to the New Testament of Henry Dunant. And that's why he chose the Red Cross symbol, which is the Swiss flag reversed. America's first president, George Washington, in his farewell address, cautioned Americans against entangling alliances. He warned them never get involved in Europe's wars. US President Theodore Roosevelt intervened in the Russian Japanese War of 1905, but not by becoming a belligerent or taking sides, but he negotiated a peaceful end to the tragic conflict between Russia and Japan, and won 
a Nobel Peace Prize for bringing an end to that hideous war and bringing peace to Japan and Russia. During the height of the Cold War, we were involved in a just war in Rhodesia and in Southwest Africa, defending these peaceful nations from communist terrorist attacks, holding the line against Soviet expansionism. Yet, during our Bible study and prayer meetings in the South Ghanami, the Lord gave me the vision of responding to communist hate with Christian love. Yes, they are sending terrorists to us, but we need to send missionaries to them. They are smuggling in landmines and limpid mines and grenades to sow terror in our communities. We need to smuggle Bibles and Christian books into their territories and win converts. We can make disciples and undermine the communist tyranny with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. In 2022, we marked 40 years of frontline fellowships, cross-border missions into war zones and restricted access areas. And published the book Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, recounting many of the untold testimonies of how God used this initiative for the extension of his kingdom, including conversations with terrorists, winning terrorists to Christ, seeing some countries like South Sudan break away as free and independent countries, and so many of these behind enemy lines encounters give us an understanding of how we can fight terrorism through the gospel. There are times when sinful men need to be restrained by laws and by force. Liberty does need to be defended. Freedom often comes through and needs to be maintained by hard fighting. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. If all the Christians became pacifists, would all the Muslims, atheists, communists become pacifists? Not likely. It's useless for the sheep to pass resolutions in favour of vegetarianism, while the wolf remains of a different opinion. For those pacifists hoping for worldwide peace, listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. You can see the Christian war book, which has been translated to German, Afrikaans and Spanish. The Bible says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You have to make peace. It takes action. Sometimes military action. Not blessed are the pastors, blessed are the peacemakers. The Colts 45 used to be called the peacemaker for that kind of reason. Most times, missionary action will bring peace. You've never lived until you've almost died. And for those who fight for it, life has a flavor that the protected will never know. May God find us faithful to his word and may we be prepared to defend the defenseless and to rescue the innocent. When we have to fight, may God make us fast and accurate. Make disciples, teach obedience to all things that the Lord has commanded. The Bibles of the Christians are more powerful than the bombs of the Marxists and the Muslims. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.